This is Richie Wexer. Welcome to the Jewish Vintage Journals Archive podcast. Um, this is episode 18 with uh, Amanda Kinsey. Amanda directed uh, a, a really great documentary called Jews of the Wild West. Uh, they were the executive producer, filmmaker. Um, they've done a lot of really cool stuff. They have their own production company called Electric Yolk Media, where they spent a decade producing for NBC News, and they live in Denver. Um, Jews of the Wild West uh, is a feature length documentary about the resilience and identity in an unexpected place. The film tells a positive immigration story and highlights the dynamic contributions Jewish Americans made to shaping the Western United States. With today's rise in anti-Semitism, these stories are more important than ever. What I liked about the documentary was one thing, so Amanda doesn't identify, she's not Jewish, and it was, you know, she kind of did this for the Jewish people and to tell this Jewish story. and. You know, you don't always get that. It was very, it was really impressed. She, she was really great to talk to, really, really interesting person. Uh, but what I liked about the documentary. It, it's also very inclusive. Um, you know, personally, I'm Jewish. I like being Jewish, but I don't always love. <sighs> I like to be Jewish in context of other religions. I like to be Jewish in practice with other other kinds of people. And what's so cool about this documentary is it's, it does, you know, it does talk about Jews, but it also talks about Native Americans. It talks about different cultures. It's very inclusive. Um, and I thought that was really smart. And what, it, what really what is, I think, you know, when talking to her, the most pertinent thing about the documentary is at a time when people are attacking immigrants, this, this really proves a point that immigrants bring a lot more than they take. I mean, there are certain immigrants, she speaks about like Levi Strauss, that, you know, brought millions and billions and billions of dollars to this culture and and so the argument that these people bring nothing to us and steal from us is, is, is kind of insane. And I love how well this story tells that. So really beautiful documentary. I highly recommend it. I know it's, I think it's on PBS. I know it's on Prime. Uh, it's it's really good. And, and really, it blew me away when I watched it. And then I, I got to talk to her pretty soon after. And it's taken a little while to put this out. So again, I recommend a documentary, um, Jews of the Wild West, directed by Amanda, uh, Amanda Kin- Kinsley. Kinsey, sorry. Uh... Uh, and, and enjoy. Thanks so much. It seems like you had come up with this. I came up with this idea going through the Beck archives uh, in the University of Denver Library. So what was it? And I'm, I'm curious about that moment. What was it like when you're, were you seeing, were you reading stories? Were you seeing images? What was it where you're like, oh, there's something here? Sure. So my background was that I was a television producer for many years. I produced at NBC. And one of the things I did there was a series called American Story, which was really a series of mini documentaries about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that's, that's really my professional specialty that I've gone on to do for PBS and Vice. And it was really central to this film, obviously. And I started looking for untold stories of the Wild West more broadly. Uh, I felt like we have a very narrow concept oftentimes of our American history. The Wild West specifically can be very narrow. I think that's a lot has to do with Hollywood and how we've sort of painted that narrative uh, over multiple generations. And I felt like there were 
bound to be a lot of stories that deserve to be told. And the Beck Archives in uh, Denver here at the University of Denver, which is uh, the Beck Archives of Rocky Mountain Jewish History, I came across that and I made an appointment to go down there. I didn't really have any expectation as to what would be there, uh, but it was so extensive. I was so impressed with it, such diversity of people's experiences, how they got out here, what they were doing. And no one I knew knew anything about this history. And a huge piece of it is Wild West specific. So how most historians define the Wild West is usually about um, period about 1840 to 1920. So that's what we focus on in the film. And what's sort of interesting about that, that's independently what sort of the Wild West is considered. It also, that period of time happens to be parallel to two uh, major Jewish immigration um, periods. So you have a, a group coming in largely from Prussia in the starting 1840s, and then you have a very much larger group coming in from Eastern Europe starting about 1881. And so the, to me, the, the interesting part about the film and why I was excited to talk to you, because I feel like this is a lot of your work, is the intersectionality uh, of these two experiences. And so it's where the Wild West and the Jewish migration experience meet that I think is really the magic of the film. But going back a little bit to the archive and researching it, I, I felt like no one I knew knew these stories. And there was so much in this archive. And I felt like if there was so much just here in Colorado, that there would be equally compelling material to be found throughout the West, including Texas and New Mexico and California. And of course there was. And I also discovered that Though there had been regional documentaries done before of perhaps the Jewish community of San Francisco during this period, there had never been a documentary that connected the dots of this being part of the larger Jewish migration experience. And I thought that these were beautiful, inspiring immigration stories that deserve to be told. Um, so tell me, you know, what was it about that inclusion that was important to you? If, if I don't know if that was something you set off to do in the beginning or that just kind of came out. So I'm just curious about that process for you. Sure, it was really important to me. Uh, it was a priority, certainly. Uh, to well, first of all, I myself am not Jewish, so I think that you know the way that I try to really approach this is I I feel that there is a central piece of anti-Semitism, which is often in trying to erase Jewish voices, Jewish lived experiences, Jewish history. And it comes up again and again. And I felt that a, a focus of this needed to be on amplifying Jewish voices and experiences. So the film, for example, has no narrator. That's intentional. It's done chapter by chapter because I felt like I wanted to show the wide range of people's experiences and their stories um, in the film. And so there are Sephardic stories and Ashkenazi stories and stories from women. And uh, you've got, you know. Why did you not have a narrator? So, Yes, so if, if I did a narrator, so it, and I guess maybe this is a little bit more minutia of making documentary films, but to have a narrator would involve me writing the script and then hiring someone to voice over what I had written. And so it becomes much more my voice. And we're very accustomed to hearing documentaries and news done that way, right? It kind of becomes this authoritative voice that's saying this is what the story is. And I wanted to remove that piece of it and really center it. Not everyone we interview is, is Jewish, and there's a whole section that we do that's, that's told from a Native American perspective, but I wanted to center it primarily around Jewish voices. I felt that that was an impeaching part of it. And I think that part of that really comes to, I think that there is an imperative for storytellers today to help amplify voices that have been and continue to be marginalized. 
And because of how anti-Semitism functions, that includes the Jewish community and has for thousands of years, the marginalization of Jewish voices. And so I felt that doing this film and centering it in this way was part of that. I felt that making sure that not only did we get the Jewish migration part of this history correct, which is often mistold, particularly by the, by the non-Jewish world, I wanted to make sure we got a lot of the Wild West history correct as well. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting about this period in our American history is that the West has always been incredibly diverse. So you have this very in, in uh, diverse indigenous population that you still have today. And there's incredible diversity within the Native American community, uh, which you know, more from the outside, we don't often see or give credit to. And then you had this uh, period in time where you had thousands upon thousands of people coming into the West, driven largely by mining from all over the world. And so this diversity was, was there from the very beginning. And I think when we understand that that is very much our history, and I think you can see that throughout the world, right? But when you look at our American history specifically and understand that that diversity has always been there and you start amplifying voices that may have been pushed to the side, I think that we understand each other better. I think we understand ourselves better. I think it creates a sense of empathy uh, and I think that it, you you really have to sort of pause and go, wow, I, I had no idea. There's so much that we don't often know. And I think that that's part of what is so fascinating about this film and this history. I mean, I had a huge learning experience throughout the whole thing as well. Uh, and my, you know, my goal is that when you, you know, finish watching the film, that you come up feeling better educated, that you, you know a lot more stuff you didn't know before. Um, so I think, you know, those are kind of all the different reasons. And that was, all of this was an important piece of it. It was definitely its own uh, intellectual challenge to try to make sense of all this. Also in a time when there's skyrocketing anti-Semitism and it felt uh, a deep responsibility to do good with the film. And so I, I had several different uh, cultural advisors on the film. So Ben M. Freeman. It seemed like, you, you know, something very smart you did is you brought people in that knew these stories that were these voices. So can, if you can talk a few minutes about the people you brought in. Sure. So there are, I believe it's 22 interviews in the film. So there's a lot of people and I can talk to you a little bit about who is in the film and why they're in the film. Separate from just the interviews itself though, I had three cultural advisors. So Ben M. Freeman, who is a Jewish educator, well-known Jewish activist and author, he appears in the film, but he worked behind the scenes as a, a cultural consultant for me. Rabbi Joe Black also appears in the film. Uh, he's a prominent rabbi here in Denver. And he was also uh, an advisor for the film. And then also Fred Vallejo, who is the uh, primary voice in the section about Solomon Bebo. He himself is a member of the Acoma Pueblo. He's not Jewish. He's a, a member of the Acoma Pueblo in New Mexico. He's the former governor of the Acoma. And really the, the, the go-to expert when it comes to the Solomon Bebo story. Uh, he is in the film, but he also served as a cultural advisor and helped me throughout the film, making sure that we got the Native American perspective, right? I mean, a simple example of this, and which is why I think it's so important to bring in people that do have this expertise, is that the Library of Congress, for example, has a huge collection of Acoma photographs from this period. So photographs taken at the Acoma Pueblo, hundreds of them, which is amazing. That was like such a treasure trove to have found that. I pulled a probably 300 that I really liked. And I sat down with Fred Vallejo and I said, can you go through these? Cause I'm not entirely confident that these have been labeled correctly. And we probably threw out a hundred of them. Uh, he said, nope, this is Navajo. Nope, this is Zuni. No, this is Laguna. This is not Acoma. 
And <laughs> something as basic and kind of tangible as that, I think is so important in terms of representation and making sure that you get the story correct, right? And so you have to bring people that have that background because there's no way as an outsider you could do that otherwise. It's just very smart of you to do that. I, I think that's like, I think that's where people miss, you know, people miss the boat. I think that's where like white, well-meaning white folks get lost is when they don't really think deep about who really, whose story is this. And I just feel like it's admirable that you knew enough and were smart enough to like, to do that. Cause I, I don't think it would have worked if you hadn't done that. Well, I, I mean, part of it's just, you know, my background is journalism. And so I think that's a big piece of it is that the stories had to be done correctly. Uh, you know, also going back to that sort of that uh, attempted erasing of, of Jewish voices, you know, so much of Jewish experiences are often questioned by the non-Jewish world. And I wanted to make sure that everything that went into the film was really substantiated. I didn't, I didn't want to put people in a position that was, was correct in that sense. Um, and then, you know, in terms of who we have in the film, it's a mix of, you know, there's biographers and historians. I didn't want to be all sort of talking heads as, as they call it. Uh, and so I felt that it was really important to try to pull in descendants whenever I could and or people that had that personal connection and that usually I was, you know, would find people by by word of mouth. Um, and, you know, I'm not a genealogist, so I had to have people that really had done the homework on their families and knew that. And usually that kind of work takes decades in terms of pulling together the history of the photo. I mean, I don't know about your own knowledge of your family history. It's a huge amount of labor. It's a labor of love to really put this history together, but it's so incredible when people have done it. And generally, like, a family will have, like, one or two people, like you and your cousin uh, or, or your aunt. But, um, you know, I am not that person for my family. But I had to connect up with families that, and then connect up with the person in the family that was that, was that you know, gatekeeper of, of information. And that was always an important piece of the whole thing. And then Let me ask you a quick question. Um, what, um, what was the process, what, or has been your process in getting, in, in earning trust and getting to know people and doing this work? What is, how do you handle that? I think people were, for the most part, uh, really excited that I'd reached out. And, and, and I always... I think this comes back again to that journalism background. Like I always treat this as an honor that someone's sharing their story with me, uh, that they're entrusting me with that. And there has to be that sense of trust from the very beginning. That's part of it. I was a, what's called a booker for the Today Show for probably three or four years at the beginning of my career, which was to book guests to come on. In that in the, that case, it's breaking news. And so oftentimes you would be approaching families and really difficult circumstances of, you know, a kidnapping and lost a child or, you know, uh, you know, soldier that died and now you want the mother to come on and talk. I mean, so these are highly emotionally charged situations. And so I think that was actually a really, it was a hard job, but it was a really good one in terms of meeting people where they are, understanding that, you know, what you're offering is really a platform to gain their voice out and, it's not about taking ownership of their story. And I think that when people feel that, that they are heard and they are seen, particularly if their story has been something that people historically or society historically has said didn't matter, which is what this is in a lot of ways. Um, I think that that's a big part of it. Um, I think that, you know, I had two, the Native American and the Jewish communities are very different, but there is a similarity in terms of how both have been treated by the outside world when it comes to displacement, genocide, mischaracterization. And so I think there, there are similar elements of trying to make sure that is the person that is approaching them 
trustworthy and gets it and sees it and willing to learn and willing to listen. And I think that's what I really always tried to put forth is that was what I was, what I'm trying to do. And then also I came to the table having done my homework that I, that I understood the context of their family's history and what, what were we talking about um, and not coming into it with a bunch of assumptions. So I think that you know, all of those kind of multi-layers are part of how you talk to people and treat people. And it's always my goal that you know, when somebody has done an interview, I, and this has been my entire career, and, and thankfully when I, when I was at NBC, NBC always, I felt like, back me up on this, is that you want people to feel even better after their interview than they did before. <laughs> I think people really need to just look at, at, at Judaism is, I don't know, I think because Jews are taught to take care of other people and because we know our history and, and we know what oppression is like, there's a lot of multiculturalism in Jewish work, in Jewish stories, um, and I'm just glad you're, you're pointing to it. It's interesting. I, I spoke at a, a school a couple of months ago and uh, I spoke, and then a couple of days later, Ben and Freeman came and spoke to the students as well. And so I was sort of thinking a little bit more in the terms of education and the non-Jewish world. This is predominantly non-Jewish school and high school. And I think, you know, part of the issue is that the non-Jewish world does not talk about anti-Semitism at home. And the only time that we talk about it really is if a Holocaust curriculum comes up and Holocaust curriculums are not required. So some people never get them. And... I think that the way that the Holocaust is often taught by the non-Jewish world is that anti-Semitism began and ended with the Holocaust, which of course is a very convenient way to absolve the non-Jewish world of any responsibility before or after. And I think that people just are not particularly well-educated. Now, part of that ends up being a choice because there is a lot of information to become better educated about. But I think that working on that and understanding that, and I think some of what you're talking about, you know, it's it's... It's a scary time because you have anti-Semitism coming in from both sides of the political spectrum, from both the right and the left. And that's hard to sort of digest and to sort through. That's just a, that's just in America. <laughs> I don't mean I hate to laugh like that, but which is a my I feel like is a minor part of anti-Semitism around the world right about now. Right. And I, but I think that as non-Jewish people, if you're really trying to be a better ally, I think that a key piece of that is starting to educate yourself, pick up a book about anti-Semitism and understand the history of it. Because it goes back thousands of years. It is so deeply, deeply ingrained. It's sometimes hard as a non-Jewish person to recognize it, to understand what you're really looking at. So once you become better educated, you can't unsee it. I don't know. I have to say, I'm not sure it's different within Judaism. I think, you know, it's a hard thing to think about. I don't know if I'll, I don't really believe that most Jews understand the history. I made myself, which is an insane thing, watch, there's like a two hour video a videotape of liberation. And it's just, it's just footage of people. And I made myself watch that for like an hour and a half because I wanted to stare down at what the reality was. And I don't think everyone's ready for that. I'm a t I've been teaching, when I've taught Holocaust, I try, you know, I'll teach about like, there was a lot of uh, um, ghetto rebellions. There was a lot of rebellions of, of, Jew of, of Jewish prisoners. You know, I, I want to I keep it positive because it's not just about the bad things. So like, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Oscar Schindler. I'll talk about, there's a book, I don't know if you know, I think it's called um, The Last Butterfly, um, that a teacher in, in one of the ghettos, it's all these children's poems and, and, and art. And again, like, you know, I just feel like it's important to remember that even in the worst, there were people that were trying to do something good. And I think that's, the real story in the Holocaust is that 
it wasn't everyone is good, everyone is bad. Right. Well, I, I think it's it's interesting. I did a, a panel with a documentary filmmaker who has a new film out about a, a Jewish man in Nazi Germany uh, who uh, was able to help uh, other Jews escape. And she had a really hard time fundraising because non-Jewish people would say, well, where's the non-Jew that was the savior on this? They didn't want this idea that, that it was, they, they couldn't get their head around this idea that a Jewish person had been part of this resistance, which is such, I think, a telling sign of a, an issue within the non-Jewish world that we have these narratives and that we just stick to. And it's really hard to get people to move past them. And one of the things that was sort of interesting to me, I did about five interviews for the film before the pandemic. And then I had to sit with these interviews for a long period of time waiting for the pandemic to lift. And there was something coming through in them that I hadn't expected and I couldn't quite pinpoint, which ultimately what I discovered was Jewish pride. It was this incredible sense of pride and Jewish joy as a form of resilience. And I think that that is really what comes through in Jews of the Wild West, because in many ways, yes, it's a unique circumstance of the Wild West, but it's the story of the diaspora and this, you know, this one chapter of the diaspora, but that sense of Jewish pride and Jewish joy of maintaining Jewish identity, even when the it's only a small group of people in a place that doesn't necessarily have a lot of, as one of my interviews said, you know, uh, community to keep yourselves together and yet still doing so. And then also simultaneously embracing the diversity of wherever you find yourself and trying to make meaningful contributions. And I think that's the story you, you hear again and again about the diaspora. It's one of the amazing things. And yes, there's incredible diversity within the Jewish world. And then there's this beautiful continuity as well. And what's what's interesting to me in a certain way is that I feel like the Black community is the same way in terms of telling the story. You hear stories about slaves and, and losing. You don't hear stories about slaves and, and rebellion. And, and, and also, I think that what's happening now, especially in Florida, like, you know, Jews, I mean, there, you know, there's a fact, the fact that there's a million, there's a ton of groups of people that deny the Holocaust. Now we have like a governor who's trying to erase black history because, and, and he knows what he's doing. The only reason people know these things and what you're doing and what you did, you know, making documentaries because of education and learning these things. I'm not a huge reader, but I watch a lot of documentaries and whatever, however you get it is fine. But when you erase those stories, you erase that culture. And to do that purposely, it just feels like a form of genocide, even though it's, I mean, it might not be killing these people, but he's telling them they don't matter. He's telling them that they're, they, they, they don't matter. You know, he's telling that, that, that their teachers aren't allowed that, you know, and I'm like, why is the federal government not getting involved? I think, you know, bigotry manifests in very similar ways. And so they're the, the justifications of it oftentimes vary, uh, but the, how it actually manifests and how people are treated uh, come, comes through in, 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 in a lot of different ways. And I think that the when you're, I find when I'm approaching this, I think it, it's, you, you don't want to get into the territory of all lives matter. I think it's a matter of listening to people's individual experiences, like listening to the collective and, and, and very diverse experiences of the Jewish community, the, the very, you know, the collective and also very diverse experiences within the black community. And, and you can go on and on of, of any persecuted, persecuted group. I think listening to those with intent and, uh, and giving space for, them, those experiences being distinct, right, and not lumping everything together, but then also understanding that there there is a, a, a unfortunate commonality when it comes to 
the violence and the persecution and the oppression people have found, uh, faced throughout history and, and trying to build allyship, you know, with one another through that. I think all of that is really important and it's, you know, it's, it's complex, but if you don't understand the history, if you don't have access to the books, access to the stories, how are you going to know any better? What I want to get into, I want to get into documentary a little bit and I kind of made some notes in different parts because I feel like the other big story, the, the biggest story here is, and, and how it ties in modern times is, is how we're dealing with immigration. One, the two things that I had no idea about, which kind of freaked me out, were the uh, Juden, I'm not going to say it wrong, Juden, Dict, and Magical. Yeah. Can you talk so, about those for a second? Sure. So, and that was something I hadn't ever really um, pieced together and thought about either. So the oppression of the Jewish community in Europe went on hundreds of years, and it was legalized and systemic. And that part, I mean, even something like Fiddler on the Roof, which I love Fiddler on the Roof, but it kind of paints the picture of a pogrom as something of like a bunch of thugs coming in and messing somebody, you know, house up. And this was literally thousands of, of Jews that have been, been uh, uh, killed, raped in many cases, looted. The whole pogrom issue <laughs> was, was, is far more complex. Prior to that, there was this legalized. Uh, Can you just speak about pogroms for people that don't don't understand? The, the word, as we explained in the, in the film, the word pogrom is comes from uh, the violence against Jews. That's basically what it is, and it had been around for a long time, but it really started to escalate starting in 1881, and became an impetus in Eastern Europe for. Uh, Jewish refugees. So they weren't just Jewish immigrants. They were Jewish refugees fleeing this like severe anti-Semitic violence and also what had been for traditionally throughout Europe forced poverty. The forced poverty piece of this and, and some of what we talk about a little bit earlier in the film, and this went all through not just Eastern Europe, but also into Central Europe, was that uh, historically uh, Jews were not allowed to own land, could not carry arms, and were severely restricted in terms of occupation. And there were also restrictions on marriage. So the idea by the non-Jewish world was to try to keep the Jewish community as poor as possible. And uh, the marriage restriction, the matriarchal, what was it called, uh, it was the idea that you had to reach a certain income level in order to be able to get married. But the majority of uh, Jews at this time could never reach that. And so marriage became illegal, which is a, in itself a way to, so that people not only couldn't get married, but they couldn't procreate. <laughs> so it is really a genocidal tool, right? That you're not going to have any more children. And so that was uh, a big part of, in the 1840s, Prussian immigrants, Prussian Jewish immigrants moving to the United States was trying to get away from these restrictions on uh, both uh, what you could do and also who or if you could even get married. The restrictions on jobs, I think that's an important piece because it really does, I think um, it becomes a lot of the origin story of a lot of our tropes we have about Jewish immigrants. So we oftentimes think, for example, of this period of you know the 19th century, we think the Jewish peddler. Well, why were there so many Jewish peddlers? Jewish, there were Jewish peddlers because that was one of the very few jobs that Jewish women were allowed to have. 
And no one chose to be a peddler, lunk around a big you know, sack full of goods by foot going town to town. And maybe if you make a little success, you could have a cart. Like that, that's a way of keeping people poor. And that was, that was one of those few jobs that people were allowed to have for generations and generations. Yeah, I mean, even the, 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 the banking and lawyer piece, I mean, that's really uh, more of a modern day thing too. I mean, part of the, you know, the, 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 the banking element, there was a, there's a piece of Christian history of not, of there being a, a Christian mandate of not being involved with lending. And so for a very, very small group of the Jewish community historically, and it's gone in and out in terms of being able to, but has been able to was 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 allowed and you know parts of like renaissance italy and stuff like that allowed to be part of the banking because christians weren't supposed to handle like lending so it's it and that was a very small minority of of jewish bankers in different parts of history and they were never safe so all it took was politically turning and saying you know what actually never mind we're not we're just going to do it ourselves and you're out on the street again and for the majority of the jewish community it was it was a, a very poor existence. So that was a very small little piece of that. Um, in terms of like lawyers, doctors, that kind of professional jobs, the Jewish community was excluded from that. I mean, there were quotas in terms of going into graduate schools in this country up, you know, relatively recently. And we're even seeing some of that kind of return right now. And so the Hollywood piece of that was that was not considered a, the, the establishment of Hollywood was such a new out there concept that it wasn't considered a professional field. And so it was one place that, that the Jewish immigrants could, to, could get jobs and could work. It's the same reason that we have, you know, if you think about like, why were there so many Chinese restaurants and Chinese laundries? Because those are the only jobs the Chinese immigrants were allowed to have. And it just kind of stinks that people then build stereotypes and attack that when that's that was done on purpose. That was done almost purposeful to a certain extent. So it's it's an it's an extra insult for no reason. It is, and it's the same thing of of if you think of the black community and you think entertainers and athletes. Well, that's because those were the those were the profession people were traditionally allowed in, and 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 in both and in those cases, you know, whether it's the black community or, or the Jewish community, people worked really hard to make successes with the limitations they were given. And I think that is an ultimately the American dream, right? So to punish either community for, for these things and make this into tropes because of what, you know, the outside world decided it was okay for you know, people to do or not do. You know, ben Freeman says in the film, which I think is a really great thing at the end of it, which, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's the idea that the non-Jewish world loves to tell the Jewish world what they can and cannot be. Part of the story you tell, which is really, really in, in, important and, and uh, well done, is that the reason Jews were successful to a certain extent, because they were set up in communities to live. They were given a little land, they were given some money, they were given some support. And I think that's why, as a minority, we've been so successful in America that another, you know, the black community did not have that. In fact, they had the opposite where they could only live in certain areas. You look at like Levi Strauss, right? Which is, I really thought it was interesting that you brought Levi Strauss, Guggenheim, Sansonite, because here they were, they couldn't work, they couldn't get married, they had to come here because they were, you know, all the programs and stuff. Here was three Jews who had nothing. And if you add up the amount of wealth between Strat Levi's, Guggenheim, and Samsonite, you've got like, I don't even know. I mean, it's probably $500 billion that came into our country because of those people. We don't hear a lot of positive immigration stories. I mean, I do want to clarify, it, it was not... Um... Jewish immigrants were not given special treatment when they got here. So there were, there were, there were, they were not um, persecuted in the United States and certainly not in the West to the same extent as other groups. And 
that was a different that was a that uh, was different than what how, how things have been going on in Europe. So it was not a legalized systemic oppression in the same way that it had been in Europe. But if you got to New York, for example, and you were a, a Jewish refugee from um, you know Eastern Europe you lived in the tenements. You had basically two options. You could work in the garment industry or you could pedal on the street. You face incredible anti-Semitism, incredible restrictions in terms of uh, what kind of education you might be able to get, what kind of jobs you were allowed in. And the the West offered less of that. Now, in, in the West, you know, you've got, historically, you've got other things happening in, you know, in the United States. So you've got anti-immigration laws that are targeted, for example, at Chinese immigrants. And, and there's a, like a legalized piece of that. You've got, uh, you know, coming out of, you know, the end, the end of, of slavery and, of course, huge amount of segregation and oppression for the Black community. You've got displacement and genocide happening for the Native American community. And I think what that's telling us is that you know, history is multi-layered it's very nuanced and what can be you know the saving you know piece for one group of people of who's you know you've got a jewish population fleeing violence fleeing legalized oppression fleeing segregation fleeing all these things in europe and it is the saving grace for, for, you know to get here and the same stuff that the jewish community is facing in europe you know other groups are facing here in the united states and and i think requires the nuance but I don't want I, I think that the film does a good job not making it um it's not like you came out and you were given a, a parcel no away. no no just to clarify I'm not, yeah I'm not saying that I'm, I'm just saying mostly my most of my knowledge is actually on like the the early the second wave of immigration in the early 1900s where there were rich European Jews that were helping they were setting people up in communities for a certain amount of time to have a they were to have a place to live so yes, 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 and no. So what's interesting is you have, and how that comes about is interesting too. So Jacob Schiff is a, a reform a, a Jewish financier in New York, extremely successful, unique in that sense. There were not a lot of uh, very successful financiers. This is the beginning of like the, you know, the Gilded Age kind of thing. And there were not a lot of Jewish players on that stage, but he was one of them. He was a huge philanthropist. And he had a really, like anyone walking down the street in New York City would have known who Jacob Schiff was in the same sort of way that you know who, you know, the Astors or, you know, JP Morgan or whatever. So right. Jacob Schiff was a really, he was a big deal, but he was very unique in that he existed at all. And Jacob Schiff was part of, you know, a group of, you know, well-assimilated to a certain extent, um, uh, German-Jewish immigrants who had been here, you know, either a, a couple generations or been here a long time to get established. And assimilation had been such an integral focus, I think, for a lot of the uh, Prussian immigrants when they came. There was this concern with the Eastern Europeans showing up that they were almost too Jewish, that they spoke only Yiddish, that they were radical in their, in their po politics, you know, that the state of what they were coming into, you know, it was, a much severe poverty that they were that they were coming out of. I mean, there are documents at you know the Center for Jewish History in New York, for example, of both the you know Jewish uh, refugees arriving from Eastern Europe, both in Ellis, Ellis Island, also Galveston, Texas, with no shoes. They're arriving from from, from Russia, shoes, no coats, no, like nothing, right? So there is a, a sense with the established Jewish community of that there is a crisis at hand that we do need to help. The Eastern European Jews, but there's also a fear that if this many people, I mean, it's like almost two and a half million people, if this many 
of these poor Eastern European Jews show up, that this is going to only increase anti-Semitism, that this is only going to increase our very fragile, our very fragile security in this in this country. There's a awareness that this could all fall apart for those who were able to make it. We could all fall apart overnight. And what are we going to do? And also, can the Lower East Side absorb this many people? And the answer that Jacob Schiff felt was no. And so there was an effort made through something called the Industrial Removal Office. And later, a spinoff of that was the Galveston Movement to push Jewish refugees west. And how that would work is that they would work with Jewish nonprofits and figure out what were jobs that were needed in different places in the West. So for example, they figure out, okay, in Pueblo, Colorado, a cobbler is needed. We don't have a cobbler in Pueblo. And so you get off the chip in Galveston, Texas, and there'll be a ticket there, a train ticket saying, hey, we think you are a cobbler and you should go to Pueblo, Colorado. And sometimes that worked and sometimes that didn't. Sometimes people got there and there were families that would be there to help. It was not like there were a lot of like wealthy Jewish um, you know, sponsors that were helping people. There were like, you know, other, other just sort of, you know, fairly recent immigrants that like were, you know, modestly succeeding enough that they could help out a little bit. I mean, it wasn't anything more than that. And sometimes that was there and that was helpful. And then sometimes it it wasn't there, you know, sometimes what they thought would be there wasn't. I mean, in the case of, we, we talk about a agricultural settlement, right? And in, 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 uh, in Colorado, Cotopaxi, and they showed up and but they were supposed to have houses and they were supposed to have like a, a farming community and they showed up and they were like wooden shacks. They were teeny tiny. There was no like farming implements. It was like really rocky terrain. I mean, it was a really crap sandwich <laughs> and people made the best they could out of it. And after two years of really failing um, to be able to make a success of it, moved into Denver. So this was not easy. And I think one of the things that is so important and, and I find so striking is, I mean, how difficult it was and how gutsy you had to be to go out to the West and how optimistic you had to be resilient. And I think that the success is not because uh, the Jewish community was given any sort of special treatment by any means. I think the success was that in many respects, because people were refugees and there was no going back. And I want to talk about one story and I'm going to share something else that connects to it. But the, the I think one of my favorite, well, the two favorite things in, in, in terms of stories you told was one of, I forget his name, the, the man who kind of like took care of the Native American community. Uh, is it Solomon? Yeah. And I, I don't want to say much more than him, except for like that, again, to be a Jew, understand Jewish history, to know to take other other people and to do that is is pretty admirable. And I want people to, you know, dig more in that story when we're told. But the one I wanted to talk about briefly was Gold in My Ear. Because there was something, something in there that was interesting to me, and it ties to a different story that I wanted to talk about. Really, admi- I'm very admired by the story of her in this, in terms of the story about the, te- you know, realizing kids didn't have textbooks, didn't have money, taking care of that, starting to, you know, raise money and helping people out. Um, and it, there's something that said about, you know, the disappointment when Israeli fell in hard times. And I guess it's something, it's something that's said, or either she's saying it or someone else said it were the democratic socialists and you were siding with the authoritarians and what, what that made me think about one of my favorite pieces of talk about unknown history at least for me was hearing about the jewish black panthers it, it, it's an amazing story because it ties the gold to my ear because i get you know my understanding to a certain extent is there was socialization there was you know israel seemed socialist in a certain sense in terms of, it seemed like people got food whatever it was and i know and, and what was happening was there was discrimination around the 60s or mid 60s where like other places all the 
European Jews were getting all the good stuff, and then the Sephardic Jews, Spanish Jews, were not getting the same uh, supplies. We're not getting the same food. We're not getting. We're not treated. They, they were treated worse. And there was a group of men, mostly who started based. A, they started a Black Panther Party based in the American Black Panther Party, and they had such a following that um, they were such a following that they apparently they were. She was scared of them, or they were scared of. Yeah, I think I think there was something in there where there was a they did not get along. And and what was interesting about that that story is every political party courted them because of their ability to get crowd. They were, you know, kind of like Abby Hoffman did in the 60s. It was this very similar thing. I'll send you a link to the documentary. It's called Do You Remember the Panthers? And it's on it's on Vimeo. You can watch it for free. And it's just another again, like woken up to like, you know, I mean, they're they're black panthers, they're not black human beings. Well, I guess depending how you look at it in terms of where they live. But anyway, the point is that like I never would have imagined that that was that was a story. And it just speaks again like, you know, taking here's the government taking examples from Black Panthers from America and 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 putting it into the culture. And apparently they were one of the most successful political parties of all time. Interesting. I, 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 I just, very vaguely remember seeing a little something about it, so I, I can't really speak uh, in depth about that, but Gold yeah. of My Ear is interesting kind of- Let's talk about Gold of My Ear for a minute sure. or two, and then we'll sure. call it a day. So Gold of My Ear's connection is that she immigrated uh, as a child to Milwaukee with her family, and then as a teenager, she ran away from home and joined her sister, who was older, and living in Denver, and so she okay. spent- years in Denver. And Denver was a place that uh, there were thousands of Jewish immigrants that had showed up in Denver for treatment of tuberculosis. There were two really well-established Jewish hospitals here that specialized in tuberculosis. And that was the leading one of the leading causes of death in the country um, at the time was tuberculosis. And uh, her sister had gotten it and then come to Denver as a result. But what was interesting is her sister was actually, her sister was the more political of the two. And she hosted these salons at her house. And because you had thousands of, of new Jewish immigrants that were kind of coming into Denver for this treatment, of uh, this health treatment, these salons were these really interesting hotbeds of, of debate. And, and I think that's one of those amazing, beautiful things that's a part of, I think, Jewish culture is, and, and, and Jewish religion in many ways, is, is the questioning of things and the, the discussion on things. And it's, you know, I, I, the, we have this concept of like a, a, a Judeo-Christian ethic, which is really doesn't exist, right? It's it's very different. You don't that doesn't exist in Christianity in the same capacity. Like Judaism is all questioning and debating and thinking through, and there's a, a, a philosophical piece to a lot of it. And so that was really the core part of the salons. And socialism was a big piece of that discussion. Zionism was a big part of that discussion. And Golda, as a teenager, would sit in on these salons, and this really became the sort of that was her education but it was were were these late night discussions and so that's what we talk about in the film and it's amazing because her little teeny house that she lived in is still here in denver and you can stand in it and you realize that here's this young little person in this little teeny house and these giant big ideas that you know forever change the world are, are come out of that and come out of her experience in denver and i think part of that is you know also the wild west and part of that was the idea of possibility right and 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 what could be, and I think that's you know a really remarkable remarkable part of the story. What's interesting to me is I feel like as a Jew you're kind of taught to question. Like my my Hebrew name is is Jacob or Yaakov, and it literally means wrestling with God. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in other in, you know in fascism you don't 
it seems like the crime is asking the question in certain in certain more conservative or orthodox religion. It's like you can't even ask the question, and I think that's what's scary. And I think that's where we're at now in a lot of ways, where it's it's the asking of the question, or even or people taking away the knowledge for you to even know what to ask. And I think without without being able to ask, how do you learn anything? You don't. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. And and I think that. You know, it's you. It's interesting. You mentioned Salman Bibo. I mean, Salman Bibo, who was this merchant in New Mexico, and what he did was he he stood up for the Acoma Pueblos' indigenous land rights, and he was the only outsider that came that understood the importance of indigenous land rights. And you know, I think that you know, ultimately, you know, Judaism is an ethno religion, and I think that the Jewish community is an indigenous people, and some of a lot of the, you know violence, persecution, oppression that, 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 you know, Jews have historically faced. I mean, that's a lot of the treatment of indigenous people around the world, right? And I think that's what Golda Meir's kind of, you know, interesting sort of take on all that was. And, and I was glad that we could tie that in. I thought that was a really important connection, connection to Israel. Doing that project, what was the take? What was the big takeaway? What, what was the thing? What, was, what did you learn the most in doing, in doing this research and doing this film? Yeah, I think that both personally and professionally, what was so meaningful, I think, to me is to try to understand anti-Semitism better and yeah. an understanding that ultimately at the end of the day, it is not the problem of the non-Jewish, uh, not the problem of the Jewish world, it's the problem of the non-Jewish world. This is a non-Jewish world dysfunction comes out of the non-Jewish world. And then I think that when you are able to sort of sit with that, as a non-Jewish person, I think you start to understand that you have a responsibility to stand up against it, and you do have a role in this. And if you say nothing, you're contributing to that role, right? You're, you are creating a culture of acceptance for this. And I, I, I think that all of that education that was required for me to be able to do the film in the first place, and now as I've gone out to distribute the film and talking to people you know, such as yourself and talking to groups after the film and screenings and things like that, I think I've become a lot more confident in my advocacy and a lot more confident in my role as a non-Jewish person when it comes to standing up to anti-Semitism. You don't, you don't hear about my, you don't hear as much about what you're kind of doing. I think it's very, you know, I think it's very admirable. Plus I can, I don't, I'm hoping it doesn't happen, but I can imagine as a non-Jew speaking, helping Jews, you might get some trolls that might have not be so nice to you. I'm sure you know, it's it, there's a risk in there, in my opinion. Well, I mean, every everything, right? Everything has a risk, right? And it's a. I don't think that that can dictate uh, what's doing the right thing. And I appreciate that you see it as admirable. I, it makes it always when someone says I, I take it as a compliment, but it always makes me a little bit sad because it should not. That me standing up and saying this should should not should not be the exception. <laughs> it should be the rule and. Ultimately, it's not it's not going to change unless more of the non-Jewish world calls it out. It's not going to change unless more people about it and say this is not and teach and teach their children about it and teach their children to identify it and stand up against it. And, and that's that's you know, that's the core of anti-racism work. And it's it's the core of trying to stand up against anti, you know, Semitism is, is, is you have to take responsibility and you have to do the work and it's lifelong and you know more people do need to do it and, and I hope my hope is this film opens people's eyes I mean it's yes the, there's a Jewish audience that it's really important for in the core audience but my my goal with it is that it reaches a larger audience and so it's 
it's now rolling out to PBS stations, which has been, I think, a really of that, you know, and it's in terms of like where it's available, people can see it on Amazon. Uh, and you can see it on uh, Google Play, Vudu, uh, Apple TV, or it's all available for, for rent there. And I hope that people check it out. And, you know, I, I really, I want more of the non-Jewish world to hear these stories and why this history, history matters in the context of what's happening today. I like that there was a section with a song, I forget what it was, but um. Bankoya in Yiddish, yes. Yeah, tell me real quick about why that song was included, because I thought that was, I think music has been a really big piece of, besides comedy, of why we've survived and with with our culture intact and with our psyche intact, because music is, you know, you, you can't kill you, you can't kill music. Yes. The two of the songs that have lyrics in, in, the, in the, two of the musical things that have music, uh, lyrics in the song, uh, film are, the beginning of the film opens with Haim Matov, a rendition of that, which is in Hebrew and is a song that is traditionally sung at Shabbat. And it's all about, uh, you know, the beauty of us all being together and the connectedness of that. So I felt like that was an important piece to kind of start with. And it's sung by actually a, a wonderful friend of mine, Leila Brukim, who is a Sephardic Persian uh, a Jewish singer who lives in Spain. And then Towards the middle of the film, there is uh, a fellow by the name of Scott Gerber, who is a real-life Jewish cowboy, and he sings in Yiddish a song called Jankoya, which is a song his, it's a folk song, um, and uh, it's a song that his grandmother had taught him, and it's, it's all about uh, I, Jews working in agriculture and being connected to the land, um, which, you know, comes out of the fact that for hundreds of years, people were not allowed to do that in Europe. Um, and so that changes and it's a song of celebration about that. It's again, a song of Jewish joy and it's in Yiddish. And I thought it was important to, to have it be sung in Yiddish too, because it, when I talked to Scott, it's not in the film, but just kind of off camera talking to him about it. He said that, you know, sometimes when he would sing it, people would come up to him afterwards and be like, why are you singing in Yiddish? You know, it's the language of the oppressed. And he felt it was such a political statement for him in terms of Jewish pride to be singing in Yiddish and and embracing that. And, and I, I mean, I think Yiddish is amazing. There's so many words in Yiddish that are like so specific in their meaning that, that don't exist in English that are like so brilliant, right? I only really know, I only really know the curse words in Yiddish or like or like words like Meshuggah, like the funny words and the curse words is all I know about Yiddish. Yiddish is so incredible, but we're actually gonna be screening in, in the fall at the Yiddish Book Center in Massachusetts, which I'm excited about. Um, but anyway, those are the two songs that are in there, and I, and I wanted to make sure that we had Hebrew in there, and I wanted to make sure that we had Yiddish in there, and I felt both of these folk songs uh, had really important, beautiful messages that were very much about Jewish pride and Jewish joy and using that as a form of resilience, which is, of course, at the end of the day, what the film's about. And thanks again. I mean, it's obvious how thoughtful you are in, in talking about this and doing this, um, and I just think it's very, you know, I, I'm hoping more people see this. I, I feel like it's going to open a lot of people's worlds up and I'm really excited about that. Thanks, Thank Amanda. You. Thank you so much. Great talking no to you and thanks for your time. And um, Thank you for inviting me. Again, um, this is our Jewish Vintage Annals Archive podcast. Um, some of these interviews are on the main page and some are just meant for this podcast. Uh, I've, I've told the story before. Uh, generally, when I started this project, it was going to be uh, Jewish stories, 
you know, in terms of the podcast. And then I felt like it was a little bit, a little bit limiting. So I just kind of made it bigger and started reaching out. And then I noticed, even though I wasn't like particularly, you know, I wasn't looking for Jews or not looking for Jews, but I started finding people that were Jewish. I didn't even know were Jewish. And it kind of felt like uh, it was kind of a calling to me to kind of do more. Um, and also, I'll be honest, like right around the time that they were talking about like banning drag and ending uh, black history in Florida, I just felt like I had to step up as a Jew to one, defend those communities and two, uh, historically, especially with if you look at Nazi Germany, you know, it seemed like uh, they went after people of color first. Um, queer folks and then and then Jews, although probably all at the same time, but generally that seems like the order. And I just wanted to kind of um, claim Judaism and, and really try to honor those two communities as well. And I just wanted to be a voice. I feel like with the last six years of Trump and all this craziness, allowing anti-Semitism to flourish has caused so many, so many bad things. And I just felt like I was kind of hiding um, a little bit, and I, and, and I just didn't want to do that anymore, and I just wanted to be very vocal. Um, I'm not religious, I'm not a Zionist, uh, I don't believe in God, but I love being Jewish. Being Jewish is, is you know, the, the ideals and, you know, trying to be a mensch and, and be a good person, the ideals I was taught in Judaism uh, really are how I live my life every day. Um, so please check us out, please share it. We've got some amazing episodes. We just got to talk to Sam Levine, uh, Freaks and Geeks, and Glorious Bastards, uh, Ellen Rapport, who's creator of Minx, uh, Julie Klausner, who was writer for Schmigadoon, um, Rabbi Gershom Sizomo is one of my favorite stories. He's a third generation generation African rabbi. We got to talk to Amos Poe, who's like a uh, punk no way filmmaker. Stuart Shapiro, who started Night Flight. Arlene Gottfried is, is a page I run. She passed away, but I talk about you know it's a episode about her photography. Eddie Davis, who performed in my bar mitzvah in 83 tracy guns uh, ellie guns founder of guns and roses um meryl meisler an amazing jewish photographer um who's been a hero of mine and a mentor um and then steven tabalowski who is oh my god i can't even tell you what an honor it was and steven is steven is amazing and uh, we get into a little bit in his episode about um shabbat so i'm recording this on saturday it's weird as, as much as i'm not religious i do shabbat but i do it my own way I don't generally work. I don't do things I don't want to do. It's more of a self-care day. It's 24 hours. And Stephen Tabalowski, in, in the interview, we talk about, you know, talks about that being um, sacred time. And I really love this idea that you, you try to be present, try to enjoy yourself. There's nothing wrong you, you can do. You don't have to do anything. You don't, I don't make appointments. I don't, I do things if I want to, but I don't, I don't plan. I don't work unless it's something I really want to do. And, and I've done it for 20 years and, and I highly recommend it, whether you're Jewish or not, uh, as a practice. Anyway, enjoy. Please check out our main podcast. Please check out our we have on our website vinajanosarchive.com. We've got a Jewish page of this podcast and has an archive of photos, some from my own family. It has a bunch of educational material. Uh, and, and you know, and and yeah, check it out. I mean, this is I love doing this. Um, I'm really excited about today. I'm getting to talk to some other people who are are huge. Uh, one is Ruth Ann Freeman, musician. She'll be on the Jewish podcast. And we just put out one, well, I guess we're printing out today with Dan Fishback, who is such a joy. Um, and that will be on this as well. So please enjoy and have a great day. Thank you. We